Welcome to the Race Through Space Read-Along Podcast, written and hosted by David Hawk. Welcome back to the Race Through Space Read-Along Podcast. My name is David Hawk, and I'm the author of the Race Through Space, which is available now on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, and Audible. I certainly hope you're enjoying the podcast, as it is very much a work in progress, but thank you so much for all the wonderful responses that I've received. Last week, I concluded the 10-year journey of the race through space, from nagging thought to the day of publication. Writing a book is just one of a number of steps before it ends up at a bookstore or goes online. I have been fortunate to be a part of books to go now for over two years. As a brand new author, they have really helped me refine my writing, uh, become a better editor of my own work, and have provided me with great opportunities to live out my dreams. So, as I write this, My situation can, and probably is, different than any other author. Some publishing houses are full service, which means that they do everything from editing, publishing, and marketing a book. And then there are numerous smaller publishing houses where it's more of a work relationship between the publishing house and the author. And that's what my experience has been with books to go now. Today's episode is going to be my version of the publication process. And if you're an aspiring author, just keep that in mind, that everybody's journey is a little bit different. And there really is no right or wrong. The best thing I can say is find the situation that fits you the best. So what I'm about to describe is what my process has been for getting my books published. I will never forget the day that I received an email from my publisher saying that they wanted to publish my book and they also wanted me to write a trilogy as I envisioned. That night, I signed my first contract and thus began the process that has brought me to where I am today. I'm not Stephen King. I'm not J.K. Rowling. And when I say I signed my contract, I am on a book-by-book deal. Whereas the most popular writers get extended multi-book contracts that come with a hefty signing bonus, otherwise known as an advance, I get no advance, and the only way I'm able to make any money is to keep churning out books and trying to promote them myself. I would be lying if I didn't say that I wanted to be a rich and famous author. I have dreamed about that ever since I was a kid reading my first Stephen King books. But I don't write for fame or for fortune. I write because I love to. I write because I think I have some talent and some pretty fun stories swirling around in my brain. To me, being a famous author means that you've been able to reach a great number of people who then lose themselves in the worlds that you've created. Fame and fortune come at a price. I tend to be very private, and I try to guard my life as much as possible. I'm also very opinionated, and that tends to rub some people the wrong way. If I were to become a famous author, then I have to deal with the cynical and cruel world, and then I would have to try to keep my life more personal and more private, and I had to keep my opinions more close to the vest. But another reason I'm nervous about striking it big is that I'm afraid. Being famous would mean that I'm constantly in front of people, trying my best not to mess up. And I'm not the best public speaker. Unlike many folks, I'm not terrified of it. I'm just not great at it. To help improve in that area, I've started doing presentations to local schools here in Denver, and I co-created an entertainment company, Chucky Pacific Productions, home of the Race Through Space Read-Along podcast, and that's where I'm practicing on my public speaking skills. I really got off track, I understand. But as I was saying, I signed my book-by-book contract, and I was off to the races. I waited for the editing staff at my publishing house to read through my stories while I began writing the next story, The Wave of Time. Within a couple of weeks, I received the manuscript back, and it was full of suggested changes. Over a thousand of them. 
The hard part of this business is to take feedback and to trust your editors. That is one thing that Stephen King said aspiring writers ought to do, and I really wanted to embrace their ideas. It is easy to become discouraged when you see so much red on your page, or on something especially that you love so much. But I trusted their ideas, I made their changes, and I sent the story back. Within a week, I had received the art for the front cover of the book, and which is the one that we still use today. They also sent me back my story, formatted in book form. It was beautiful. With the email of my formatted book was a message to read through it one more time just to make sure that it was perfect. In my over-exuberance to publish my book, I quickly glanced through it and I signed it off. That was an enormous mistake. I know at bigger publishing houses, there are proofreaders that go through each book and check for any grammatical or spelling errors. Not at my publisher. To this day, I continue to find mistakes that I should have caught when the manuscript was sent for me to sign off. And once your book is in print, there's very little you can do about it. Those mistakes become a permanent part of the story, and I own them all. My hope is that I can make those changes when I finally get around to expanding the original stories. I also have to admit that those mistakes are hindering my sales. But everything is a learning experience. I've become more patient with going through the edits and reading through my stories before they get published. Just in reading the wave of time, there has been a huge improvement. But there's still room for more improvement. There's no perfect from any artist. There's only perfect in the moment. And that is where we'll leave off for today. On the next episode of the Race to Space Read Long Podcast, I talk about the day where the book was finally published and everything that's happened in the last couple of years since that date. Today I'll be reading chapters 5-8 through eight from the Race to Space, The Wave of Time, from the Race to Space trilogy. We'll begin on page 98. Chapter 5 Neil's father paced in front of a low fire. He waited impatiently for Ralph's analysis of the flower petals. If they were edible, then he had a considerable amount of food available to him. But just like flowers on Earth, these could turn out to be poisonous. Dude, can you stop that? You're stressing me out, Dr. Lowell said from his sleeping bag. Sorry, Stephen said back, checking his watch one more time. A ding sound came from Stephen's earpiece. The petal analysis is complete, Ralph said. The flower is made of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. Its chemical makeup is nearly identical to that of the purple cone flower on Earth. Why do I know that name? Stephen asked. The purple cone flower is also known as echinacea, Ralph answered. Being that the chemical composition is so close between the cone flower and the flowers you found, I would say that not only is the flower edible, but if you were to brew it into a tea, it may help Dr. Lowell fight his infection. However, he will have to consume an extreme amount of the tea to be effective. Excellent news, Stephen said to himself. There's always bad news to balance the good news. So what is it? Not bad news per se, but if you want to heal Dr. Lowell's infection more quickly, the petals may be made into a paste. Unfortunately, you would need to apply the paste directly to the infected areas, Ralph replied. Easy enough, Stephen said back confidently. You will need to open Dr. Lowell's wounds and administer the paste directly onto the lacerations. The pain from the surgery may cause Dr. Lowell to go into shock and it could kill him, Ralph told Stephen. Stephen put his hand to his chin and weighed his options. He either had to brew a considerable amount of the flower tea and somehow get it down Dr. Lowell's throat, or he has to cut his friend's infected leg and chest open and apply the paste directly. He figured that if his friend was going to die either way, then he won't spend his last days in pain. He decided to brew the tea. That's when he was stopped by a voice no louder than a whisper. I want the paste, Dr. Lowell said weakly with great physical exertion. The procedure could kill you, Stephen said at the figure in the sleeping bag. I'm going to die anyway, 
Dr. Lowell said before falling unconscious again. Stephen looked at his friend bundled in a thick sleeping bag, shivering uncontrollably. I've got this, Stephen said. Stephen left to pick flowers in the fields, and when he arrived, he noticed that the petals had started to wilt at their edges. For hours, he picked large armfuls of flowers and set it by the entrance of the shelter. He carried as much as he could back to the camp, and he prepared for surgery. The first thing he did was boil the knife in their small pot. He pulled the knife out of the pot and, without touching the blade, dropped it into a plastic bag. He dumped handfuls of the red and purple flower petals into the remaining water, and he used the butt of his flashlight to grind the petals into a thick, violet paste. Stephen walked up to his unconscious friend and rolled him onto his back. He unzipped his sleeping bag and dry heaved at the smell that emanated from within. The plan was to start with the infections on his friend's legs. There were two large lacerations on Dr. Lowell's left thigh and a small one on his right shin. Stephen grabbed his sterilized knife and the pot of petal paste. I'm so sorry I have to do this, he said to his friend. Stephen's knife made contact with one of the long infected lacerations on Dr. Lowell's left leg and he shot up screaming in pain. Stephen was scared backward and dropped the knife onto the ground. It was no longer sterile. Dr. Lowell slumped back down and slipped back into unconsciousness. Stephen grabbed the knife and stuck the blade directly into the flames of the glowing fire, singeing the hairs on his hands. He turned around and went back to work. He had no other choice. Chapter 5 was a really fun chapter to write because it also teaches you. There is a theory in science that is called convergent evolution. It is a theory that says the species will evolve similar traits because that is the best way for them to reproduce successfully. So when I came up with the idea of the flowers, I thought that I can compare it to flowers on Earth, such as the cone flowers, otherwise known as echinacea. Knowing that, the chemical compositions of life are generally the same. At the end of the chapter, I debated with myself whether or not to leave the surgery scene in the book, as this is a story for kids and it's kind of graphic. But it was a dramatic part and it was also very important. So I decided to keep it in, but to edit out some of the more graphic elements in the story. Chapter 6 Oblivious to Dr. Lowell's plight on Flora, Neil sat staring at his grandfather, still not believing that he was there, sitting next to him. What took you so long to get here? Neil asked his grandfather, who was packing up the solar oven. Your question implies that it's taken me weeks to meet up with you, Grandpa Al said. You know that's not the case, right? It's been several days, at least a week, Neil said. To you, it's been a week. For me, I received your father's message just yesterday, his grandfather said, never breaking eye contact with his grandson. I was at the LIGO Observatory in Louisiana for the last two days, and cell phones weren't allowed inside the lab. When I returned to my hotel, I saw that your father had left a message. As soon as I finished watching it, I pulled out my wormhole device and went to Simia at once. I took the transport to Alone, and when I got there, there was a great deal of activity. Yima had made it back to Alone with Maya, and there was a furious activity around the city. Olu was too preoccupied keeping his citizens informed about Maya's recovery and in securing the Waichu defenses, though he's far too busy to let me interfere. He was polite enough to give me a room while my device recharged. He told me about your bravery during the rescue mission, and that you guys are heroes on Simia. I've never been so proud of anyone in my entire life. When my device was ready, I opened up a wormhole to Amphibios, because that was the only direction the wormhole goes, and that's when I ran into you. Are you sure the wormhole path only goes back and forth? Marie asked. If that were the case, how would Mr. Webb end up on a planet that he's never been to before? Neil's grandfather opened his mouth and closed it abruptly. He was at a loss for words. He just assumed that 
It only went back and forth because that's all he'd ever found, he said. Did my dad ever bring his instruments to Simia? Neil asked. We considered it, yes. But just bringing all the components to Simia would require us to take several trips, said his grandfather. Then we would have to put it together and find a power enough energy source, all while being left exposed at the top of the Simian canopy. What if the wormhole doesn't just go back and forth, but also has paths that run sideways, Neil asked, picking up a thick blade of grass and drawing several circles in the sand. Here are the worlds attached to my father's wormhole path. He tapped the blade of grass into the sand. Here is Earth, Simia, Amphibios, Silosis, and all the way to Verlam, he said. With the blade of grass, he drew a little line connecting the circles in the sand. Next, he drew a series of lines that went up and down, and another set that went side to side. Finally, Neil drew small circles at the junctions of where the vertical and horizontal lines met. His grandfather took the blade of grass from him and used it to draw a circle connecting all the lines. If this were a sphere, all paths would lead to Verlam, he said. Incredible. How can we find out if there are other paths? Marie asked. Neil's grandfather touched the screen of his wormhole device, and he saw that it had fully charged. Check your device. Is it charged up yet? Neil's grandfather asked him. Neil tapped the screen of his device, and it was fully charged. He gave his grandfather a thumbs up. Why? Marie asked. We can use our devices to verify the existence of other wormholes. We won't even need to go through the wormhole. We can just see if there are other paths. If that's the case, we have another wormhole device charged and ready to take us to Silosis, Grandpa explained. But aren't they in a war? Isn't that what happened to Mr. Webb? Marie asked. That's true, said Neil's grandfather. We wait until both devices are charged, then we travel to Silosis. Once we're there, we use the other device to locate the adjacent path and leave as soon as possible. There's just one thing to think about, Neil said. When we get to Silosis, not only do we have to dodge a war, but we also have a 50-50 chance of going to the right planet. I'll take those odds, said his grandfather. The three of them got up off the ground and stood in a circle. Both Neil and his grandfather turned on their wormhole devices by tapping their screens. Ralph, can you help us out? asked Grandpa Al. Theoretically, if you open the wormhole to Silosis, you can scan the horizon with the singularity open. You may detect a complimentary wormhole signature, Ralph said. I think that's a yes, Marie said. Both Neil and his grandfather initiated the wormholes, selecting Silosis as their destination. Blue lasers shot from their devices, and they both ended in expanding singularities. In the middle of their wormholes was a red sun setting on Silosis. Now, scan, said Neil's grandfather. Neil and his grandfather swung their wormhole slowly to the left and then back to the right. They first scanned the ground, then upward towards the sky. Neither of them detected any of the wormhole signatures. Just as the wormhole was about to collapse, Neil saw his view of Silosis meld into an orange world with a volcano erupting in the distance. In an instant, the volcano was gone and was replaced by the Silosis landscape. Both wormholes collapsed. I did it, Neil said excitedly. Neil's grandfather and Marie jogged over to him, and he pointed to the spot where he saw the erupting volcano. Right there. It was there for just a second, and then it was gone, but I definitely saw something. Ralph, can you hone in on that area for its energy signature? Grandpa Al asked. You betcha, Ralph said in a very North Dakotan accent. Now we need to recharge our devices, and tomorrow we leave for Silosis, said his grandfather. We got this, Marie said. I say this calls for a feast tonight. Peaches and turkey tetrazzini. I better start cooking. Night will be upon us soon, said Neil's grandfather. The three of them sat around the stove as Grandpa Al cooked their meal, using MRE pouches and some spices he carried in Ziploc baggies. 
Dinner was ready just as the slinkies started poking their heads out of the sand, and then came the deep groaning sound from the longhorn frogs. They made their way to the camp in the grass. They ate their feast, told stories, and laughed. After the dinner was consumed, they laid on their backs and looked at the stars above them. They quickly fell asleep, their bellies full of turkey tetrazzini, and their souls boosted from a successful day. In chapter 6, there are very few chapters in any of my books that are as important as this one. First of all, chapter 6 explains that time is being experienced differently by everyone. A week to Neil is less than a day for Grandpa Al. And that's because the wormholes are bridges of space and time. Neil's wormhole path is anchored to Earth time, so he can have all of his adventures but only return to Earth after just a few seconds. Next in this chapter... We discovered that the Tiva didn't just come up with one wormhole path that includes Earth. They came up with numerous wormhole paths, and they were all connected to Verilum. That's how Neil's dad was able to escape to Flora. And the idea that there are multiple paths really come into play as the series goes beyond the original trilogy. Chapter 7 Neil opened his eyes, and he was sitting on the amphibious beach. It was daytime, and the sun shined brightly in the sky. It took him a moment to realize that he was not actually on the beach, but rather, this was a vision. His suspicions were confirmed when he looked to his left and he saw his father sitting next to a small fire. The world was split in half. Amphibio shined on one half, and his father's dark shelter on the other. He noticed a bright yellow sleeping bag lying close to the fire. His father looked up from the fire and saw him. He leapt to his feet and ran to his son. His father grabbed him under his shoulders and lifted him off his feet. He put him down gently and embraced him again, kissing the top of his head. Let's go to the beach, his father said to him. Neil led his father along the amphibious beach. His father took off his shoes and socks and shed his cold weather gear. He sat down and buried his feet in the warm sand, and he raised his face to the shining sun. Neil sat down next to his father, and he rested his head on his father's shoulder. This is different, Neil said. It's remarkable. I can feel the heat of the sand on my feet, and I can feel the sun on my face, Stephen said. How are things on your end? Neil asked his father. Better than they have been in days. For some reason, the sun started shining here, and the world bloomed overnight. The flowers have antibiotic properties, and I'm using them to treat Will. I just hope it's not too late to save his life, his father said. How about you? We were ambushed by the Darrow, and they were about to overrun us when I opened up the wormhole and went to Amphibios, he said. But guess what? What? his grandfather asked. Grandpa Al is here too. No way, his father said, shocked by the news. Yeah, and we figured out that there are lots of different wormhole paths. Tomorrow we're going to go to Silosis to find your path and rescue you. That's the best news I've ever heard, his father said. You need to be careful, though. Silosis is extremely dangerous. I've made friends with the Silosian resistance. It was their soldiers that died protecting me and Will. If he is still alive, try to find Ort. He will protect and shelter you until your device is fully charged. Or, got it, Neil said. Whatever you do, be careful and stick with your grandfather, his father said. Neil was awakened by the familiar tapping of the Spaldings. He opened his eyes onto a slate gray sky. He felt something wet on his face. Raindrops. He propped himself up on his elbows and saw the Spaldings step backward. A white Spalding with black patches on his fur stepped forward and honked its long nose at him. Neil didn't respond. The Spalding honked again and pointed its nose toward the beach. Neil stood up and looked towards the ocean. Off in the distance was the largest storm he had ever seen. White bolts of lightning crashed into the violet waves. 
The amphibious atmosphere was rich with oxygen, and it made the thunderclaps sound like firing cannons. That's not good, he said to himself. Neil hopped over to the, his sleeping grandfather and shook him awake. His grandfather opened his eyes and stared up at Neil, who was breathing rapidly. Big storm, Neil said, trying to catch his breath. His grandfather popped out of his sleeping bag and he looked towards the ocean. Yup, that is big. We need to go, his grandfather said as the rain started coming down in sheets. Neil woke Marie up just as the frontline winds arrived at their camp. The winds blew the solar oven into the air and it landed in the field a hundred feet away. Lightning exploded from the storm as it barreled down on the camp. Do you want to use my device or yours? Neil asked his grandfather. Yours. Mine isn't done charging, his grandfather said while cinching up his pack. Neil swiped his fingers across his device and it brought up the pictures of the five planets. The picture of Silosis showed a brown planet with a deep red gash sliced into its rocky face. He tapped the picture. It brought up the wormhole menu. Neil tapped the word initiate. A blue laser shot out of the device and it began to glow. A dark, rocky world expanded within the wormhole's singularity. Marie and I will go first, then you run through. Don't waste any time, his grandfather said as a booming clap of thunder erupted overhead. Let's roll, Marie said, trying to be heard over the raging wind. Now, Grandpa Al yelled. Neil pressed, stabilize. Marie ran through the singularity first, followed closely by his grandfather. Neil ran through last. He turned back to watch the singularity collapse when he saw the white spawning with black patches jump through the wormhole and into his arms. Oh no, Neil said, and the singularity closed. In Chapter 7, we get another vision. I originally came up with the visions as a means to let my readers know what's going on with Neil's dad, but they have since become a critically important element in the stories. It establishes that these visions are not dreams, because you can actually smell the air, hear the thunder, see the lightning, and feel the heat of the sand on their skin. In this particular vision, Neil was able to tell his dad that he's running to Grandpa Al, and that him, Grandpa Al, and Marie are on their way to find him. But this is an also an opportunity for his father to give him directions. Otherwise, Neil, Marie, and Grandpa Al would have to figure out everything to do all by themselves. And then finally, at the end of the chapter, when you have a large ocean world, you get enormous storms. Plus, I had to find some way to move the story into the second act, where all the action happens. The ramifications of the storm that is barreling down on them come into play since uh, the group has to leave so suddenly and without fully charging their devices. That comes back to haunt them as they make their way to Silosis. And then finally, Sagan the Spalding is my version of the Disney animal sidekick. Chapter 8 Just as Neil was arriving on Silosis, his father was wakened by a humming sound that filled the darkness. He rolled towards the fire. His friend was gone, as was his yellow sleeping bag. Stephen quickly sat up and looked around. His eyes strained to see past the faint light kicked up by the low fire. The humming sound slowly faded away until the shelter was silent once again. He stood up and headed in the direction of the humming. Soon the bright entrance of the shelter door was in view, and there was something big standing in the doorway. He picked up his pace and walked faster towards the figure. The closer he got, the louder and more defined the humming became until he noticed it wasn't humming. It was singing. He heard the words, This is ground control to Major Tom, echo through the shelter. Somebody was singing David Bowie. Stephen pinched his arm to prove to himself that he wasn't dreaming. He was ten feet away from the door when the figure from the doorway looked back at him and smiled. It was Dr. Lowell. His eyes were closed and he had his face turned... 
and his face was turned his face towards the sun. What? His eyes were closed, and he had his face turned towards the rays of sunlight. Good morning, sunshine, he said. Stephen couldn't believe what he was seeing. He never expected his friend to survive the infection, let alone be watching a sunrise on an alien planet over an endless expense of wildflowers. But here he was. Dr. Lowell turned his head. You seem like you've seen a ghost. You are a ghost, Stephen said. I'm not sure my brain believes what my eyes are seeing. The two men embraced each other and held it for almost a minute. It appears as though the reports of my demise have been completely over-exaggerated, said Dr. Lowell. The two men walked outside of the shelter, and they sat on the ground to watch the sun rise over the field of flowers before them. The air was sweet and floral. Dr. Lowell set flower tea from a small aluminum mug. I put some of that tea you made in here. It tastes like rose water, he said, raising his mug to Stephen. I still can't believe you're here, Stephen said. I mean, you shouldn't be here. We have yet to fully understand the antibiotic properties of the flowers native to this planet. Might I recommend you collect several samples for further study, Ralph said through Stephen's earpiece. A tear appeared at the corner of Dr. Lowell's eyes. He wiped it away with the sleeves of his shirt. You saved my life. I don't know how I can ever repay you, he said, his gaze never leaving the sunrise. No, Stephen said. You don't owe me anything. If it wasn't for me, you wouldn't be here in the first place. You almost died because I was selfish. Selfish? Dr. Lowell asked. You're not being selfish. If we went on this journey for fame and fortune, then yes, that would be selfish. But I've never heard you say that you wanted any of those things. You want to change the world. I can't think of anything more noble than that. If I died in the pursuit of knowledge, then it would have been worth it. The two friends sat, staring at the field as a bloom to life. Dr. Lowell looked back towards his friend. What I miss, he asked. Well, Stephen said, quite a lot. And finally in Chapter 8, we get to meet Dr. Lowell. Sure, we've met him before, and he's spoken at the Planetarium show, but for the most part, he has just been Neil's father's sidekick, and he's been injured. This time, we actually get to meet him and get to know him a little bit. The surgery on his infections have worked. He is weak, but he is alive. Also in Chapter 8, we find out that Stephen never wanted fame and fortune for inventing the wormhole machines. He was driven purely by the sense of adventure and a thirst for knowledge. And then finally, I wanted to give a nod to one of my favorite recording artists, David Bowie. I don't think many kids who know who he even is, and that's a real shame. I really hope my stories inspire more people to go back and listen to David Bowie. Additionally, I have created a Race Through Space playlist on Spotify. It's full of songs that I listen to as I write the Race Through Space stories. I have a different playlist that I create for each book that I write. Well, there you have it. Chapters 5 through 8 from the Race Through Space 2, The Wave of Time. Next week, we go to Silosis and meet Otto and General Ruby. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you like what you're hearing, make sure you share the program and follow us on whichever podcast platform that you're listening to. And make sure that you give us a five-star review. And if you'd like to throw down a couple bucks to support Truckee Pacific Productions, you can go to our Venmo at Truckee Pacific. T-R-U-C-K-E-E. P-A-C-I-F-I-C, Chucky Pacific. If you want to shoot me any comments, you can email me at DaveTheWriter303 at gmail.com. Please check me out on Facebook at DaveTheWriter303, on Instagram at DavidHawk303, and on Twitter at DavidHawk303. Have a good night, guys. Be safe. And if you happen to be outside, take a look up at the stars. The Race Through Space Read Along Podcast is a Chucky Pacific production. 
For comments or sponsorship inquiries, please go to truckypacificproductions at gmail.com.